Well, it's nothing uh, quite like the month of November. It's, it's a time of, uh, as I just prayed about, it's a time of Thanksgiving. It's a time we're getting geared up for the, for the holiday season. But, you know, I've been thinking about it. There's also nothing quite like November to highlight the things that divide us. I mean, we start off with elections, right? So right off the bat in November, we're immediately divided along political lines. And then we get into this part of November, and it's all the college football rivalries. And so we're getting ready to be divided all over again. And then once we get through uh, Thanksgiving, we'll move into that time of year where we're divided over whether to say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. We'll be mad at each other about which one of those greetings we use. Uh, the events of, that happened in Ferguson, Missouri, and everybody's kind of bracing themselves for what happens next when the grand jury verdict comes down, have highlighted how we're still divided along racial lines in our country. Whether we, we like to think we've made more progress than maybe we actually have. Divided along economic lines. Why are we like that? Why, why are we so tribal? Why is there so much hostility between different groups of people? Uh, is there any hope that they'll ever be different? Is there any hope that we're actually going to fully realize God's plan to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 1? Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and see. Uh, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. This is God's word. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope. And without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We pray for us. Father, this is your word, and we thank you for it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten us. Help us to give attention to it and to understand it. And then, Holy Spirit, you would enable us to live uh, as your word calls us to live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's what these verses are, are kind of about in, in, a, in a nutshell. Uh, they're talking about the hostility that exists 
between Jew, the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and, and remember this text is made with Jewish people, everybody is not Jewish, so that's Gentiles. So it talks about the hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile. It talks about what God has done to remove that hostility. And then it talks about how God is now taking and making one unified people in the church. So those are kind of things we're going to look at. I want to start by asking, talking about the hostility. The hostility that this text talks about between Jew and Gentile. And ask, where did that come from? Where did this hostility come from? Now, let me read just a couple of verses again so you can kind of get a sense of this. Uh, look at verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, here's these two groups. We're separated, and God does something to remove that hostility by removing the law and its commandments and its regulations. So they're separated, and then they're brought together. Now, what's that all about? Uh, you got to do a little quick Old Testament with you. Old Testament lesson: God creates man. There's the fall of man. Sin enters the world. Everything's kind of messed up, and you're, you're kind of going along there. And it feels like the light of the knowledge of God is going to just completely sort of fade to black. But no, there's not going to be anybody left who actually worships God. And in the midst of that, God calls Abraham by his grace. Remember, Abraham came from a family of many worshipers. And God, by his grace, calls Abraham to himself. And he promises Abraham, uh, I'm going to make you a blessing. That through your descendants, all of the earth is actually going to be blessed. And so God gives Abraham promises. Uh, he gives him circumcision as a sign of these promises. Uh, and then to Abraham's descendants, he begins to give his laws and his regulations, the sacrifices, the temple worship, all of these things. And he's essentially saying, I'm going to give you a way to know me and have a relationship with me and to make me known to the world. I want the whole world to have the blessing of knowing me. You are blessed to be a blessing. So, so think about all that, you know, all that Old Testament stuff that we don't understand, all of the laws, the regulations, and the sacrifices, and the temple worship, and all that. It's just it's to show people how to have a relationship with God. But the reality is they're pointing to something beyond themselves. They're kind of the scaffolding for something God's doing. They're not the final thing. They're actually meant to point everyone to Jesus Christ. To point to something beyond themselves. Let me give you an example of that to kind of help you make sense of that. Why do the people in the Old Testament sacrifice animals? Right, why, did, why did they do that? The animals were offered as a substitute for themselves. So, so it'd be like, I would come to worship, and I would bring my lamb with me, and then I would slay the lamb, right? right? And that lamb is doing, Justin, that's what you deserve, but God is accepting this lamb as a substitute, as payment for your sins, so that you don't have to die, the lamb dies instead. 
Why do we do that anymore? Why do we have a land concession out the back? Right? You buy lands and bring them in. Why do we need to do that? Well, because the land, and John the Baptist calls Jesus the land, uh, the land of God that all those other lands were pointing to, the land of God has been sacrificed for our sins. God has provided the substitute, the true substitute in Jesus Christ. So we don't need physical lambs to be slain because Jesus is the lamb who is slain. So all of this Old Testament stuff, the rituals, the regulations, everything, are to show people how to have a relationship with God. And more specifically, they're to show you that a lamb needs to be slain for you to have a relationship with God. In order for the, the barrier between you and God to be removed. And so the Jewish people had something really good. Right? That's what Paul's saying. They had something really good. If you were a Gentile, they had something you needed that you didn't have. They had a way to have a relationship with God. But instead of using what they had, the Jewish people began to take this pride in what they had. And let me let me give you an illustration. I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but I'm going to use it anyway. To kind of give you an idea of what I think this is like. Imagine that God had given the Jewish people a telescope, okay? And the telescope was able to make the invisible visible. In this case, it was able to make God, that you cannot see, to make God visible. And God wanted the Jewish people to use this telescope and to live their lives in such a way that the people around them came and said, What's so different about you? And you're able to say, we, we know God. We have a relationship with God. Look, here, I'll show you. You can look through this telescope and you can see God and know what it's like to have a relationship with Him. Instead, they got all excited about the telescope itself. And they didn't use it to, to point people to God. And they're like, look, this thing is nice. This is shiny. We need to keep this clean. This is ours, and you Gentiles need to keep your hands off of it because God didn't give you a telescope. Right? He gave this, he gave this to us. And, and the reason you didn't get one is because you're not clean, and so you need to stay away from us. Now, here's how that worked out in actual practice. By Jesus' time in the temple, there was a big fat wall. But if you came to the temple and you were a Gentile, like we would have a wall like back there by the offering box, okay? And you'd have to stand behind that wall. And there was an inscription on the wall that said, any Gentile that goes past it just die. Something like that. That's a translation of the whatever. You didn't go past that wall if, if you were a Gentile. So the Jews were on this side of the wall. They, the, the Gentiles, they had to drink from a separate water fountain. Okay? They, they couldn't come and, and, and be with everybody else. Now, can, I, can you see how, given that set of circumstances, how hostility might develop between these two groups? God had given the, the, the Jewish people good gifts, gifts that were meant to be a blessing to the world, gifts that the, that the Gentiles needed, and were cut off from. But the Jewish people wound up using those gifts as a way to feel better about themselves and to look out at the people who don't have the same gifts. 
that? Do we ever do that? Yeah, we, we, we do that. We'll talk about how in a minute. Um, racism is one, obvious one. Why do we do that? All right, why do we, we take the good gifts God has given us and, and, and get all prideful about our group and look down on groups who are different from us? Uh, here's what happens. We reject God. Uh, we are, as Ephesians 1 said, remember Ephesians 1 said, we were what? We were dead in our sins. We're walking in our sins and our transgressions. And when we reject God, we have to find some other foundation on which to build our identity. We're made to, to, to find our identity in God and knowing Him. But when we reject Him, we have to find some other place to build our identity, some other place to find our worth. Here's how Tim Keller put it in, in his book, Reason for God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from God. It's an interesting definition of sin. Sin is seeking to, to get an identity apart from God. Alright, what does that mean? We all get our sense of being valuable, of having worth from, from somewhere. We're made to get that from our relationship with God. Right, Keller goes on to say, sin involves making good things ultimate things. Sin is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness in your relationship to God. Now, do we do that as individuals? Sure, we do that as individuals. Uh, you know the, the line from, from Chariots of Fire, the guy's asking him why he's training so hard for the 100-meter dash. He says, I've got 10 miles of seconds to justify my existence. Right, to, to prove that I have worth, to prove that I have value. Right, this, is, this is us defining ourselves by what we have, by what we're able to do, by who we know. We're, we're getting an identity, a sense of worth, a sense of who we are apart from God. Right, we do this as individuals. We also do that as groups, though. We don't just do that alone. We we, we may find other people to do that to do that with. Uh, if, if you don't believe me, wait until after the Clemson South Carolina game, after the Auburn Alabama game, after the whoever Mississippi Mississippi State game. Uh, wait to see what happens. There was a uh, there was an article in Sports Illustrated this week about last year's. Auburn Alabama game. Uh, and I think I'm going to have to live on that one for a while. But um, in, in, in the article, a, a former Auburn athletic director said this, which I thought was very insightful. He said, If your team wins, you're a better person on Monday than you are on Friday. You're a better person on Monday than you are on Friday. You're certainly better than the person whose team lost. All right? And then he says, that's how people feel. And that's why it's so big and sometimes so poisonous. That's why it's so big and sometimes so poisonous. Here's how, let's go back to Keller again. Are we got Auburn AD and Tim Keller. I like the contrast. Tim, Tim Keller says, if we get our very identity, our sense of worth from our political position, then politics is not really about politics, it's about us. 
Alright, put your put your team name in that. If we get our identity, our sense of worth from our team winning the game, then the game is not really about the game, it's about us. He goes on to say, through our cause, we are getting a self, our worth. That means we must despise and demonize the opposition. If we get our identity through our ethnicity or socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you will be extremely indignant toward people who think you, who you think are bigots. If you are a very moral person, you will feel superior to people who are immoral. The real culture war is taking place inside our disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desires for things that control us, that lead us to feel superior and exclude those without them, and that fail to satisfy us even when we get them. What did he just say? The game isn't just about the game. That's, that's what he just said. If your team wins on Monday, you're a better person than you were on Friday. That's what he just said. Now, non-sports people, um, you have you got your own thing, right? And it may be your thing is thinking all those sports people are crazy for living like this. Well, I would never act like that about a game. Uh, we, 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 we've all we've all lumped ourselves into groups that we kind of identify with. You know, the smart people, the beautiful people, the Republicans, the the Democrats, the rich, the poor, the hard workers. The moral, the, the, the open-minded, whoever it is, and you you elevate all the good things about your group, and you, you demonize all the things about the people in the other group that you're in opposition to. Uh, opposition to you demonize the people on the other team, and even we even demonize the people on our teams, on our own teams that we think don't that we think aren't taking it seriously enough. Uh, that same article, after the Auburn-Alabama game last year, there was an Auburn fan who was giving two Alabama fans some grief. An Alabama fan had a very good reaction. She said, well, it's not true about that big deal. It's a football game. And somebody shot her for saying that. You know who shot her? There's another Alabama fan. He said, you're not taking this seriously enough. And so we, we can kind of, we can like, I know this is an extreme example, we can kind of, we, we can kind of turn on people on our own side if we think you're not, you're not serious enough about the cause. And so we can demonize people on the other side, we can even demonize people on our own side. And so this hostility arises when, when we're trying to find a sense of identity and worth apart from our relationship with God. And then we do this within the context of the groups we associate with as well. We try to find our identity and our worth from this group that we connect ourselves with. So, what do we do about that? How does, how does God remove the, the hostility? Look, look at verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law of its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Now that's like it's really long, like what what did all that say? I just like one time I wish I had a video screen at the screen, and this is what I would I would put up on the screen for you. I want you to picture this big humongous wall with the Jews on one side of the wall and the Gentiles on the other side of the wall. And the, the wall represents the Old Testament system with all of its commands and sacrifices and rituals and, and regulations and all that. And you got the Jews on this side of the wall who take great pride in the wall because it's really kind of on their home field anyway. And they feel like God is with them on their side of the wall. And so they, you know, they, they like the whole thing. And you, you Gentiles are on the other side of the wall because you're unclean. So you got this wall. And then, sort of out of the blue, as it were, this, I want you to imagine this giant cross, right? Think of, think of what, the Hunger Games, whatever, like dramatic illustration, special effects. This giant cross coming down and just exploding the wall. So wherever there's this giant wall separating these two groups of people, instead of the wall, there's now a cross standing there. Instead of a wall of separation, there's a cross where the wall once stood. And that cross said to the Jews, guys, this Old Testament system was scaffolding, and it's coming down. Your fellowship with God, your relationship with God is not based on your Jewishness or on circumcision or on having the law or having the temple or any of this, but your relationship with God, your fellowship with God is made possible simply through the blood of Jesus that's been shed on the cross. And all that stuff you had was meant to point you to this cross anyway. It was meant to point you to your need for a Savior, and here he is. Here he is. That cross said to the Gentiles, guys, you, you do need a Savior. You are alienated from God. But the answer to your problem is not to become Jewish. The answer to your problem is not to try harder to be better. The answer to your problem is the blood of Jesus, which alone can bring you into a relationship with God. You need a Savior. Jews, you need a Savior. Gentiles, you need a Savior. Here's the Savior at the cross. And so you see then that the cross has this power to restore our vertical relationship with God, which we talk about a lot. But it also has the power to restore our horizontal relationships with other people. How does it do that? How does the cross do that? There are two ways. Two ways it does that. Number one, the cross said to the Jews over here and the Gentiles over here, it said to both of them, you're both sinful. You're both alienated from God by your sin. You're both so bad that you need the Son of God to die for you. To die for your sins. You're all on a level playing field. Right? There's none of you that are you know, you're this far upstairs, some of you are this far upstairs, some of you are way down in the basement. But you're all right here. You all need what, is, what has happened on that cross if you're going to have a relationship with God. You, you, your good deeds are not enough to get you into a relationship with God. But it also said to both groups, your bad deeds, the things that you've done, are not enough to keep you from having a relationship with God. 
the way to God is by grace, through faith, in what my son has done. Do you see, do you see what the cross does? The cross of Jesus takes away our ability to boast in our own gifts. It takes away our ability to, to boast in our good deeds. It takes away my ability to look at another person and say, I'm, I'm better than you. He says, Justin, you're in the same boat with all those people you think you're better than. He says, you're in the same, you're also in the same boat with all those people that you think are better than you. You're, you're, you're all in the, the same boat. Those people that we look down on, even though we don't admit we look down on because they're too fat or too poor or too dependent on the government, too self-righteous, too liberal, too conservative, too lazy, too rich, too stuck. The cross says we're all in the same boat together. That none of us have a leg up on anybody else. And that the only way for any of us to be righteous is through what Jesus Christ has done. And so the cross makes you humble. The cross gives you a new humility. And that has a way of removing hostility, doesn't it? I'm not better than anybody else. The second way it removes hostility, though, is that it gives us a new identity. The cross says all that stuff that you've leaned on to make you feel better about yourself, you don't, you don't have to have that anymore. You don't need to demonize the other side to make you feel better about your side. If you're a believer in Jesus, the cross has brought you peace with God. So the cross says no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done, to you, no matter how you failed, you're loved and accepted by God. And that frees us, the more we get that, that frees us from all our attempts at self-rescue. It, it frees us to build our identities not on what we've done or what we've accomplished or who we are, but to build our identity to center our lives on the God who loved us and saved us. And so I'm no longer fundamentally a failed mother or father or a successful business person or a, a nerd or a jock or, or black or white or Clemson or South Carolina. I'm fundamentally a child of God saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Loved by God. That's who I am. That's who I am at the cross. Now, what would our attitude be toward people of other races if we actually believe that? What would our attitude be toward people of other races if we actually believe that? Wouldn't we be able to listen to their vantage point less critically when they're trying to tell us something where it's like, oh, I, don't, I don't believe that. If we're really finding our identity in Christ and not in being right. Wouldn't we be able to listen when someone pointed out our racist attitudes? Wouldn't we be more inclined to be able to listen when, you, when, when people say, you know, the system is kind of have prejudice in the system, and, and someone will say, oh, no, 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 it's not like that. Wouldn't we be more inclined to at least give that a hearing and to listen to that? What would happen to our attitude to people of other political parties if 
we're finding our identity in the cross. What would happen to our attitude toward people who root for other teams? Okay, so that's, that's coming up this weekend. See, the, the reason we hate, and you fill in the blank with who you hate, the reason we hate that team, the reason we get overly excited when we win, the reason we get too depressed when we lose, is because we haven't learned to build our identity on God's love for us in Christ. And trying to win the game has become a, a, a bad substitute for finding our worth and knowing who we are. We, we have to learn to define ourselves by what Jesus has done for us. Well, we, we've talked about the, the source of the hostility. We've talked about what God's done to remove that hostility. There's one more thing quickly. God is now taking these people who are hostile to each other and he's putting them all together in one family. He's putting them all together in one body of people called the church. Um, Look in verse 15. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. God is taking people who are hostile to each other and He's uniting together in one body, one family called the church. I want to make two quick points about this. Um, We may come back to one of these in a couple of weeks. But first of all, God is building His church. God's intention for you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is to be a part of a particular local church. Now, I understand the sentiment behind, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. But that's not biblical. Jesus died for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the, the body of Christ. If you're if you're Christians, if you're a Christian, God's will for you is not for you to worship with a few friends together on Sunday morning. That's not the church. Uh, it, it, it's not for you to, to have some you and God time together in the mountains because I just feel closer to Him there. It's not for you to lay on the couch and watch whoever on television. But God's intent is for you to be a part of this family, this body where he's knitting people together who have forever been hostile to each other now learning to love one another. Secondly, God is, I mean, look, God is doing it. He's taking people who are hostile to one another and he's putting them together in this body called the church. And so here's what that means. The church is the place where racial reconciliation ought to be happening more than any other place. The church is the place where racial reconciliation ought to be happening more than any other place. The church is the place where rich and poor ought to be able to sit down and have table fellowship with each other. But instead, I'll look around, right? It's not hard to make this point. Uh, The the church, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, is still the most segregated hour in the United States. 
It's one of the, the last places where these barriers have come down. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. I, I can get into trying to think through all that right now. But at the very least, if we're going to be a church that loves Spartanburg, if we're going to be a church that loves Spartanburg, shouldn't we be praying that we'd be a church that represents Spartanburg? Shouldn't it be our, our hope and our desire that we would look more like Spartanburg, a church where black and white and Hispanic and Asian, a, a church where rich and poor come together, putting all of our cultural differences aside because we've been united by the cross? How powerful would that be if we actually looked like that? What would that say to Swartenberg? And, and, and how much would that actually change us if we were a part of a church like that? Would you pray for that? That's all I'm asking you. Would you pray for that? Let's pray together. Father of heaven, um, we do confess our <laughs> tendency to try to find our identity in the groups we associate and not in the youth. We know that creates a lot of hostility and a lot of barriers. And we pray simply that by the power of the gospel, by the power of the cross, that those barriers would start to come down. We pray in Jesus' name. Before we sing this last song, y'all thought I just skipped it. I want you to go back to Confession of Sin. And I think it will make sense uh, while we're doing this now. But let's, uh, let's confess our sin together using the confession of the of the Lord. God of all nations, we praise you that in Christ, the barriers that have separated humanity are torn down. Yet we confess our slowness to open our hearts and minds to the people of other lands, tongues, and races. Deliver us from the sins of fear and prejudice, that we may move toward the day when all are truly one in Jesus Christ. Amen. Take a moment just to silently confess this. Racism and prejudice is a hard one. It's hard to work through and get our arms around and to move away from. But there is good news in the gospel. Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified,